This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Girls in Glass Slippers, Tracing the Origins of Cinderella. So... As you might have noticed from the title, we are back with another fairy tale episode. Um, Now, obviously, we have done one of these so far, and we did previously discuss the idea. Have we done one? Have we done two? We've done two. 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 (laughs) Sorry, my brain. Uh, We've done two of these so far, um, and as previously discussed, they've been received very well, and so we thought we'd continue. Uh, with this series and this time we are going to be looking at one of the oldest and most beloved tales um, within Europe and that is Cinderella. Actually it's an across the world tale. It is across the world but I would say that it's very beloved in Europe. Definitely. But, but it is yes it is it is definitely an across the world tale. Yeah um, as a little aside people uh, even if these were not well received episodes I would still be doing them anyway so yes <laughs> unfortunately yeah we are what we are (laughs) you knew what you signed up for (laughs) okay um before we get into it a quick recap uh basically a fairy tale is defined as a short story with fantasy type elements e.g gnomes wizards talking animals etc they differ from myths and legends which often contain historical elements which are considered to be true whether they are or not is up for grabs Mm -hmm. Um, and from fables and parables in that they are not explicitly for the purpose of delivering a moral. Um, While God and religion may exist within a fairy tale, they are rarely at the forefront and are generally treated as fantasy editions as well, which I always find quite interesting. Mm -hmm. As in that they're they're as real as the fairies or they are as fantastical as the fairies, etc. Yeah. However, there is a blurring of lines across all folk narratives, and it really depends where you are in the world, who wrote the story down, um, as to its nuances and origins and things like that. Um, you know, so we have said in the past that obviously in the Victorian period, morals really, really did start getting pegged into uh, uh, fairy tales, um, and they were obviously used as lessons and devices for discussing societal issues and things like that. So there is a lot of crossover, um, but we've already gone into that, so we're going to move on from there. But you can look back at some of our previous episodes to get a bigger, more nuanced idea of just exactly what fairy tales are. So, Cinderella! <laughs> yes, um, Now, I knew this was old and I knew that it was widespread, but I didn't know it was quite as old and widespread. So basically, under the Arne Thompson Folk Index, um, if you don't know what that is, Arne and Thompson were two Victorian, no, sort of Edwardian gentlemen who were folklorists, big surprise there, and they went through and collect, they looked at collections of folk tales and they collected more folk tales and they looked for tropes and things that linked. Um, There are also a group of women who helped them with this, so let's not forget them either. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's why we now have this folk index. Um, So under that Arne Thompson folk index, as it's called, Cinderella is classified as a 501A, which sounds like a category threat in some sort of cryptid movie, but is in fact basically code for the heroine is mistreated by her family. That's your baseline trope. Yes. 
Um, and everyone has a version of Cinderella. Uh, so China, Russia, Scotland, India, Ireland. <laughs> I mean, I know it was always presented to me as a French fairy tale and certainly uh, some of probably the, the best known version of Cinderella absolutely is. But it's so much older and more widespread than that. So we'll get into that in a bit. But it's yes. estimated that there are between 350 and 1,500 variations. Yes. So when we do say that it is uh, one of the most beloved <laughs> fairy tales, we're not exaggerating by any stretch of the imagination. Obviously, we're not going to cover all of those today. No, we, we definitely aren't. Or like ever in our lifespans. No. <laughs> we're going to scratch. We're, gonna, we're just going to sort of scratch at the surface at the moment. I'm not sure how much of a dent we're even going to make, but we're going to try. So the basic bones of the plot are very simple. So a good and kind young woman is unjustly oppressed and mistreated by her family, but through... Uh, perseverance of goodness and of hard work she is eventually richly rewarded and her true worth is seen by all it's a very very universal kind of story and one which you can understand immediately looking at why it's persevered for so long um because it is every person's dream if they're <laughs> if they've been working hard that i shall be rewarded <laughs> Yeah, that that idea that it you know doesn't matter how low other people and their actions and their spite might bring you, that eventually mm-hmm. you will have a way out of it. That you know that your worth will be seen. Um, there's also obviously supernatural elements. So there is usually some kind of supernatural entity which assists the young protagonist. Most commonly, a fairy godmother. That's the one we're all familiar with. But the part has also been played by an eagle, a talking sheep, a tree, and a pile of bones. Yes. I think the first version that I really became familiar with was the tree. Yes, I love that version. We will get to that because we we really enjoyed that particular. (laughs) There's there's discrepancy on what the tree was as well. But again, I won't go off on one there. Now, the method of revealing the cinder girl's identity is almost always via the medium of a garment or sometimes an item of jewellery. So it could be a ring, a necklace, and obviously the most well-known version is a slipper or a sandal. Yeah, which has cued many foot fetish type memes. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got a a foot squeamishness thing? Have you really? That's so... What, what is it about feet, genuinely? I, I don't really want to be having this conversation right now. That's what it is. <laughs> okay, so there we go. Feet and puppets. Every day. A, f- a foot puppet. <laughs> My worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd like that. Then. <laughs> what is it? It's a foot. <laughs> I don't want this. I don't want this in my life. Uh, Moving on. The earliest written example of the story dates back to the first century before Common Era. The essential story and its tropes may be even older and possibly predate written language. Uh, Not that we have any way of knowing for sure, but if I had to bet one way or the other, I would say that it does. Mm -hmm. 
Now, from there, the story does do the standard fairy tale shapeshift in order to survive, although interestingly, not nearly as much as other fairy tales have changed over time. And again, that probably links into some of those very universal themes. Yeah, I was actually, the more I looked at this, I was startled to see how much the main common elements stayed the same, even while the the fringe, the trappings and everything Mm -hmm. kind of shifted. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, we, we talked about first century BCE. A few centuries later, there is a Roman variant by Claudius Olanius in Varia Historia. So he was actually writing it as a history of a, a real person. Thank I'm you, real... Claudius. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, you know, I think it's quite interesting. And the story seems to go... This is the weird thing about this particular story as well is that you will have an account of it and you'll go, oh my God, that's Cinderella. It's just it was written 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then it will go underground for a few hundred years and then you'll it'll pop up somewhere really odd, like India, and you'll go, oh my God, it's Cinderella. And then it goes underground again for a few hundred years. Yeah. And I guess we can only really assume that it's basically just gone back to being an oral tale that nobody's writing down at that point, but the story is still being told all the time. Just yes. changing. Um, so yeah, it, it it pops up again in Chinese literature during the ninth century. So, you know, already we we've gone from basically Egypt to Rome to China. So that's already quite a trek for a little story. Yes, and of course the thing is that we can say, all right, so perhaps it is the same story which has been sort of passed over travellers and stuff like that. Um, but also we do have to consider the possibility that there could be two unique people who are, uh, you know, two unique cultures who have come up with a story which is very similar because of those themes and those ideas which are so universal. And before he gets excited and hops out of his box, I'm just going to put um, <laughs> Joseph Campbell back in. Down! Down, Campbell! Um, uh, you know, but, you know, there are some really interesting ideas there which we don't really have time to get into, but worth a shot... Uh, you know, worth worth a sort of a little read read or research if you're kind of into that archetype stuff. Yeah. If definitely. if you wanna if you wanna have a date with Carl Jung, you know, um, he'll receive you gladly, I'm sure. So I mean, obviously, what we're not we're definitely not saying is that the story absolutely comes from here and all variations come from that variant. Yes. However, we're saying this is a likely path based on the very slim amount of written evidence we've got from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Um, in the sense of the way it's written suggests that this is a retelling of a tale. It's already a retelling of a tale that is very old that people know. Yeah. And they're familiar with the common elements. Yeah. Which, again, provides these this fascinating idea that this might be a story which originates and which is shared from an incredibly early age where people were just starting to sort of spread out you know, for the first yeah. time. I mean, this um, like, might literally be the sto- the tale as old as time. Might <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, every time it rears its head and manages to get written down, it's slightly different, but it's essentially the same story. And yeah. then it goes underground and, you know, it mostly exists as basically a spinning tale. So told by mothers to daughters, granddaughters, uh, grandmothers to granddaughters etc we know the stories were mostly passed on um, between women and women to their children etc mm-hmm. um, because of the way society was set up at the time and we know that men have their own oral tales as well so this isn't me going this is this is a woman's story and that men would not have listened to it because that's absolutely not true um, yeah. 
but that you know from the way the story evolves it's um it's clear that it went down a particular path whereas if you look at something that was taken from the epic of gilgamesh it's quite clear that that was more of a that that went down the more sort of the men told these stories to each other type path if you see what mm. i mean yeah absolutely yeah um, which takes us to, uh, well, 17th century France, but certainly 17th century Europe, where we get several variants uh, collected from many different cultures. Yes. Um, and then, you know, the rest of it really is history um, as it kind of begins to get translated. Disney got their little and mitts then, on it. And then Disney get their little mitts on it. Um, and there are suddenly a lot of mice involved. And... Um, I mean, there were mice involved in some of the earlier versions as well. That sounded uh, so weird. <laughs> this group of rodents broke away from the usual rodent trajectory and went into filmmaking. Yep. I mean, it is Disney. I mean, so... Yeah, could happen. Yep, could happen. It's all run by a big mouse. So there we go. Um, anyway. Um, Let's look at some of the key themes. Yes. So... First one, the young heroine is established as good very early on in the story. Now, sometimes this is synonymous with great beauty, but often her beauty is just an aside. It's her goodness which makes her attractive. Um, now, I know we were just talking about Disney, but one thing I really appreciated about the live-action version remake of Cinderella was, and I've been a little bit about most of the live action remakes is they really put emphasis on this idea yeah. of, of for Ella um, who's their Cinderella in this story um, that one of her greatest assets is that she's kind um, and that is and that's one of those big things she is kind she is patient she is good yeah, essentially absolutely and I think it's really, I mean, I went obviously and refreshed my memory on reading some of the variants of this, which we all get into. But um, I thought it was really interesting that many of the, the better known variants, all, you know, there were one or two that were kind of like, oh, yes, that Cinderella, who was a great beauty and her stepsisters who were ugly or her older mm -hmm. sisters who were ugly. Um, but most of them were kind of like all three girls were very attractive. Yeah. And but what set the youngest child apart was the fact that she was good she was kind to everybody she yes she was obedient in a filial sense in the sense of what she did she did for her family which was obviously very prized through various ages yes. so it was that that sort of thing humility and hard work were definitely in there as well all these things were supposed to have made her very attractive the beauty was very much an incidental thing yeah and what's interesting, of course, is that when you consider beauty, particularly in adaptations uh, from the Victorian age onwards, and where you really start to get see the ugly sisters rather than the elder sisters, as it were, yeah. is that, of course, within these, these stories, these were shorthand for if you're ugly, you're bad. If you're beautiful, you're good. So they say she's beautiful in order not to have to explain all of the other things because you know by virtue children at this age are supposed to know by virtue of the fact that she's beautiful that therefore she is good she's blessed etc yes. kind of god has marked her that way exactly yes, yes. which is always a bit <laughs> <laughs> put it 
putting that aside. <laughs> people think I don't like the Victorians or the Victorian era. I actually find it fascinating. I just don't like the way they've treated certain aspects of history. Yeah, and it really is. I mean, we there's a reason we keep going back to it because so much of our literature today has been shaped by the Victorians. So we just we can't ignore them. Definitely. Um, okay. And um, another key theme: familial abuse and graciousness in basically graciousness in the face of unjust oppression. Yes. Now, this is an interesting one um, because obviously, and there's been a lot of sort of chatter about um, there's no such thing as the perfect victim. And in terms of sort of the narrative, uh, Cinderella is the the stereotype of the perfect victim. She just takes it, she accepts it, um, and then she's kind of lifted out, um, you know, by by external forces but i would actually say that this is not really true if you look at the story itself i'm so glad you said that because i don't agree with that at all. yeah and, and all no, that perfect victim bollocks really really makes me angry exactly exactly um so a lot of people can just say well you know that and that's what it and i i want to point out that it's not the case i don't feel it's the case at all um she is a a young girl who is fulfilling the role, the familial role that she's been placed in. She is, uh, she's been abused. Um, She has no escape. She is doing what she has to, to survive. And yet you see, um, I I think one of the big things is people, you know, say, oh, you know, she has to wait to be saved. No, she's rebellious, but rebellious in, in the only way that she can be. She wants to be involved in the party. She's been told she's not allowed to go. And yet still she does go. Um, you know, and that's a decision that she makes. She's not carted there against her will or anything against that, you know, anything like that at all. She is still a person who knows her own mind. She pushes against it, uh, pushes against the abuse, but she also has to suffer it. And one of the big things that shines through, which is at the core of the story, is that despite the abuse that she has to endure, she remains kind. Yes, she doesn't allow someone else's degradation to touch her, which I think, you know, it it is very much the ultimate playing the hand of cards you're dealt. She got dealt a really shit hand and she played them and played them well. And I find it really interesting that in most of the versions that we're going to, we will discuss, um, you know, the the sisters aren't necessarily really taking part in in this, this abuse of her. A lot of the, in some versions they are, but in a lot of versions they're kind of just a bit thoughtless. And you can see that their children, who are gradually growing into teenagers, etc., who are aping what their mother was doing. Yeah. Or they are taking their cue from the parents, or or there's there's petty jealousies and things in there. Um, All stuff which you can grow out of, which you know is not is not pleasant at all, but and it doesn't stop the situation from being abusive, but. It's not as black and white as, say, later adaptations made it out to be. Yeah. And it's, um, I find it also very interesting in many of these versions that despite the fact that Cinderella seems to be older for her years as well, I guess because she's lost her own mother. Yeah. And that does tend to make you grow up quite quickly. And Mm. she's just sort of, she's seeing beyond the pettiness to the potential of the person these sisters could be. So in many versions, the sisters don't actually get punished. Um, Cinderella sort of 
makes peace with them and she finds them husbands as well, which you've got to consider the time frame that these things are being written in. Um, yeah. Or, you know, she, what she genuinely wants is peace with her family and accord and for them to recognise her as being one of them because she's been yeah. made an outsider in her own family. And so so this whole bollocks about, oh, well, she's just this, this beautiful suffering victim is kind of like, you really don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Unless you're going from one single adaptation and you've never bothered to look further or ask questions about it. Exactly, yeah. Um, and also the idea that she perpetrates the, the myth of the perfect victim or things like that, or, or how victims of abuse are supposed to act, which is just take it on the nose until they're you know, until their their things change or stuff like that. I just don't think that is really the case if if you sort of really look at it. I don't think you can put blame on a fairy tale for that. And I also think that when you look down on Cinderella for, you know, for the fact that she does need assistance uh, to... And you could say, actually, all she need, all she wanted was a chance to be able to have a night off. That's what she wanted. She just wanted to go to a party. She didn't go there to try and catch the prince's attention. She wanted to go to something which was within, which she had been invited to, essentially, um, to be recognised for who she was, which was, you know, I think she's a lord's daughter or she's something, you know, um, for her to be recognised for the station and 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 to to escape what she had, the life she'd lived for a night, you know. Um, and I think the problem is that when you look down on Cinderella, you miss the core elements, which is, again, that despite everything, she managed to survive and stay kind. That is her strength, um, that she was she didn't need a man to come and save her or fix her or anything like that. And that there was nothing inherently wrong with the fact that she needed help to get out of her situation. Um, because the only reason she got the help was because she was good and kind in a lot of these versions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one theme that kind of gets passed over, but I think is worth looking at, because it will come up in future fairy tale ones, is that the position of the favoured the favored youngest child. Mm. So in some versions, um, she loses her mother and then her father remarries, and then shortly after she loses her father, so she's entirely in her stepmother's power. Yeah. And her stepmother is obviously inherited everything and she could basically put the girl out on the street or put her in a brothel if she wanted to let you know yeah. let's not pretty this up um there are versions where the father's a bit negligent and yeah. he's married this woman and you get the impression that actually he maybe didn't ever really love his first wife and that the child who reminds him of his first wife is of no account to him so he allows her to be treated badly Mm. Um, so you know, there's a lot of variation that, but the the whole idea of the favest young, the fav, the favest, the favored younger child, you know, the last child, it's kind of like Sunday's child, you mm -hmm. know, the child that is born on the Sabbath day is bonny and blithe and good and gay, gay in the original. Sense. Yeah, but also but, potentially gay in the non-original yeah, sense. <laughs> not not claiming it all, for, <laughs> but possibly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of like that, you know, you're, the last child you have is, is, in traditional terms, your favourite child, not least because that's the one that's probably going to be staying home to look after you when you're in your dotage, so you kind of want to be on good terms with them. Yeah. Um, that's the one you couldn't provide a dowry for, the one who gets shortchanged on everything, traditionally in fairy and folk tales, 
And Cinderella starts off in that position and then is very firmly pushed to the bottom of the heap, which yeah. I always find interesting. Yeah. Okay, so uh, next is the shoe. <laughs> um, so obviously <laughs> there are a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism here. So symbolism of delicacy, femininity, and innate graciousness. Yes, having very tiny feet was a, a symbol of beauty, but also being feminine, refined, delicate, etc. Um, and it's not, you know, obviously you have later in, in China from sort of 10th century to the early 1900s, yeah. uh, but not just China, um, all of, across the world being delicate and feminine in your feet and your hands, etc. Yeah. So and it's also, if you think about it, she's been forced to do servant's work. So chances are her hands have got rough and red and calloused. But yeah. they can't do the same thing to her feet. So if her feet are still sort of small and exquisite, etc. They're saying, well, beneath the servant exterior, actually, she is still a baron's daughter kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Next, of course, is hard work, uh, perseverance and kindness uh, will make wonderful things happen for you. Therefore, if you cannot end your current suffering, bear it with grace. Yes. Now, I'm in two minds about this, and I think this is also where a lot of arguments sort of come in, in that some people say, well, that lesson is unhealthy. You should push against, you know, stuff like that. And I think it really does depend. I think sometimes... Not if it's when, not safe for you to do so. Yeah, yeah. If it's if you are in a not a safe place, um, and you know, it, it is not you are not a bad person if you push against that. You're not a bad person if you don't bear it with grace, but you bear it with with all that you've got instead. Particularly a bad situation. Um, there is this kind of weird desirability on. Uh, you know, suffer in silence. It is beautiful to suffer in silence, which I think is very damaging. Yeah, I'm not sure that's really the message there, though. No, I th and I think that's one of the things, is that people might sort of look at it, and I think have looked at it in the past, and again, this kind of links in with the sort of the perfect victim idea, etc., um, and sort of said, accused it of, of bearing that kind of narrative. And I agree that I don't think... That's actually what it is, though I do think that some interpretations of it have kind of pushed it in that direction. Yeah, I think interpretations definitely can. Um, to me, though, it seems more like, yeah, OK, obviously the first part of it, hard work, perseverance and, current, and kindness will make wonderful things happen for you. Well, generally speaking, that is true within as much opportunity as you get for those things. Um, but if you cannot end your current suffering, bear it with grace. Um, it's the bear it with grace bit. It, that doesn't necessarily mean just roll over and take it. <laughs> what it means is don't become hardened by the things that are done to you or try not to. Um, don't take your suffering and then find someone else to inflict it on, which yeah. an awful lot of people do. An awful, and, and don't turn it into an excuse for you being an absolute shit to everybody else. Which, again, <laughs> yeah. I see increasing examples of, oh, well, this happened to me. Ergo, I now get to talk to anyone I like um, in this way. And nobody can call me on it because I am a victim. I'm, I'm really against celebrating victimhood. Yeah, 
it's it's the uh it's actually toxic yeah it's the cool motive still murder kind of thing yeah. uh, <laughs> that's uh, not to say yeah. i don't have a great deal of sympathy and empathy i really genuinely do but yeah. not when people are sort of using you know this happened to me ergo you know at a certain point you become responsible for your actions yes and, yeah and you are responsible for everything that happens then so yeah Sorry, everybody gets a shit deal at some point. So the next is the supernatural aid. Now, interesting, because at no point does the fairy godmother or the talking sheep ever say (laughs) the cinder, save the cinder girl. Yeah, I Um, I I think this is an interesting one, just because some of the early versions actually have the fairy godmother living in the house with Cinderella. Yeah. And, you know, no, she doesn't seem to really ever interact with anyone else, but no one's surprised that she's there. She's like an aunt or something. Yeah. And um, she's obviously powerless to affect physical change in the real mundane world. She cannot remove the girl from an abusive situation and say, no, hang on a second, that's your daughter. You treat her like every all your others. Yeah. But that's not what happens. Um, but she does do what she can to facilitate Cinderella getting a different opportunity yeah she's different it's not like someone coming along and waving a magic wand and making everything go away that is absolutely not what happens yeah and honestly i think this is again the most important thing to recognize is that um it is not because of magic that the prince fell in love with cinderella and hopefully it's not her feet either no hopefully that's not the issue either um, what we we do know, however, is that they met, and she totally charmed him, yes. and that was all on her. That was every bit her and nobody else. Um, you know, she is the one who saved herself in that way by being herself. Um, all she needed was an opportunity to kind of to be seen where she'd been hidden away. And that is what the the magic, the supernatural aid gives her. And this is actually at the heart of a lot of fairy tales, um, particularly stories about young women. So you kind of see it in Beauty and the Beast as well and things like that, is that ultimately the, the onus falls on the decisions or the character of the, of the protagonist. It always has to, because it's ultimately about them. They have to make a decision, they have to be a certain way, and therefore everything that follows is because of them. The supernatural side of things usually just tends to help them get to to that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, I, I suppose this is... I didn't realise I was so annoyed about this story and the fact that people keep misinterpreting yeah. uh, um, aspects of it, but there you go. Sorry about that, you get my irritation, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, that the whole idea that Cinderella is a perfect victim and someone comes along and goes whoosh and solves all her problems with a magic wand and it's absolutely not what happens at all. Yeah. No matter how it's been prettied up. Okay, um, the, the innate subversiveness of the story is another key theme. So literally rags to wit- riches. Rags to witches. Yeah, little slip there. I have actually read a version of Cinderella where she does go from rags to witches, where she literally becomes a witch. So that's probably why that came out. That is a perfect... I love it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think, again, that's a universal theme. Anyone who's kind of had to toil 
you know do any hard work anyone who's you know ever really sort of worried about money or things like that have always just thought oh but wouldn't it be wonderful if one day there's just a whoosh and then next thing you know you never have to worry about these things again you never have to worry about the bills you don't have to worry about health you know insurance you don't you can actually do things you enjoy go and explore the world etc yeah Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, and final one. If basically, if you your your true value will always be known. I'd add the caveat: if you are a good person, your true value will always be known or will always become known. Yeah. Um, because we are actually really receptive as a species to, um, because we're we're based on cooperative intelligence. We notice when one of us is actually especially good at helping the others. Yes. So, you know, that's almost, that's hardwired in there. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're a social bunch. It's very important. Okay, so let's look at some examples of this story. Now, again, there are so many. We are, we're not going to be able to, obviously, get through them all. But let's look at through some of the most pertinent and some of the most interesting ones uh, to hand. So literally the first written example we've got of Cinderella is Rhodopis and her little gilded sandals, which was an Egyptian tale recorded by the Greek geographer Strabo in the first century BCE. Um, this story basically goes along the lines of uh, an Egyptian queen had obviously many slaves. And you, if your slaves are of high, high standing, as in they're your favourites, then you tended and certainly in that particular era and time, to dress them in very good clothing and with jewels and things. I mean, they were still slaves, but they were literally your your handmaidens or whatever, so they were um, they were quite doled up, as it were. So Rhodopis was actually a slave, mm-hmm. and she was bathing with her mistress in an oasis, and she left her little gilded sandals on the outside of the, the pool, and an eagle swept down, and carried them off. <laughs> um, the eagle soared away with these sandals. God knows what the eagle thought it was going to do with them because they were never going to fit him. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that. <laughs> and uh, she obviously couldn't couldn't get her shoes back um, because the eagle was gone. The eagle, that eagle was gone. Um, the eagle then, there was a nearby kingdom and the eagle circled basically one of the state buildings where the king was in a sort of in one of these outdoor courts with his his ministers etc i'm using king and minister but the words would have been different just but so you've got yeah. a rough idea and the eagle circled overhead which you know for the romans was also a really that was a portent but it was a portent way before the romans decided it was important yeah. so they were all looking at this eagle and the eagle suddenly drops this pair of sandals into the king's lap and he is astounded at the delicacy and grace and the, the you know the tiny size of the woman's feet and he swears that he must find the woman to whom these sandals belong and eventually having you know expended an awful lot of resources sending his his warriors out everywhere with look, seeking the woman who's lost her sandals he discovers Rhodopis um, the slave girl belonging to the queen of a nearby kingdom and uh, he purchases her and frees her and then marries her and she becomes queen Oh, that's nice. I love the fact that at no point when he looked at these dainty little sandals did he think, could these belong to a child? (laughs) 
You know, I'm kind of glad that the story didn't go there. Yep, because honestly, like, anyway. Um... <laughs> What's really interesting about this story is that it is probably based on a true occurrence. Which, I mean, I, I find fascinating, but... Um, that's the story as it was told in the first century BCE. If you actually go back about five centuries earlier, um, the the historian Herodotus was writing about a similar person. But basically, she she was genuinely a slave, and she had come from Greece originally. Um, it was around the time of a particular pharaoh whose name is now escaping me. Um, yep, that's just, it's just gone out of my head. So I do apologise for that. Um, but what what's really interesting is that you can verify a lot of the people because this particular slave girl, Rhodopis, um, was someone who the brother of Sappho, yes, Sappho of that, <laughs> that particular poetic fame, <laughs> had met and heard of and, you know, basically you can there's lots of lines of of crossover here so this queen did genuine if you look at it this queen who married a pharaoh did genuinely start out as a slave girl and mm. we know her name was rhodopus or something like that which means rosy eyes i don't want to know why they're called rosy eyes maybe she had very bright eyes or something yeah that a lot of people met her as a queen afterwards and this story was very well known and it was very well known 500 years before it was actually written down and there's a second verifiable account about sort of 300 years later as well, which, so I just think that's really interesting because you've got the bare bones of this Cinderella story, which may yeah. have already existed and fitted the narrative of this person with the sandals. That is really, really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it was Herodotus and Alien writing three... Ilian. I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's not alien as in, you know. <laughs> No, 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 you'll get the conspiracy theorists in. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I said pyramid and alien. Um, no, Roman, Roman historian, again, uh, verifying it three centuries after that. So, and, and then the story was written down. So I just think it's really interesting that she was very probably a real person and it's still recognised as being the first written account of Cinderella. That's brilliant. That's very, very cool. Okay, so if we then jump, we've got several other versions from all over the world. All over we, we won't go into super detail on a lot of them just because we'd be here for a very long time. But yeah. um, we go to southern South India. Yeah. Southern South India? Southern India. Um, the story of Sudewa Bai. I've probably said that wrong and I do apologise. Um, a king and a queen... Or a Raja and a Ra Rati? Rami? Or something. I can't remember the name of the queen. There you go. My brain is useful for nothing today. <laughs> let's just say a king and a queen, and please add the correct terms in your own heads. Yeah. Um, they had a daughter, mm -hmm. and their daughter was extremely blessed and favoured by the gods. And the court physician, and for physician, please read also astrologer and soothsayer, said that she will be extremely graced and gifted and everywhere she goes she will you know she will be the richest and um, most loved princess mm -hmm. and this turns out to be true because she grows up she starts walking and wherever she walks gemstones fall at her feet and whenever she speaks pearls and rubies fall from her tongue which sounds to me really uncomfortable yeah i i 
because there's other fairy tales where this kind of thing happens and all I can think of is that must be really really uncomfy yes so not not great um but uh, Sadewa Bai was born with a golden chain of beads around her neck and when they asked the soothsayer originally what the chain was for he said you must never take this chain off because it contains the girl's soul Anyway, there is, you know, she's she's loved, she's spoiled, etc. She's absolutely cherished and, you know, she's given this pair of encrusted gold shoes, sandals. Um, but she's a good person. Everyone loves her. Not just, I mean, you know, the pearls and rubies could actually be the fact every time she opens her mouth, she says something kind or she sees the heart of the matter, even though yeah. you, they do then spend the pearls and rubies so... I think there's some metaphor in there and some sort of like, this is just really weird. <laughs> to me, a Westerner, that sounds uncomfortable. Anyway, she's out riding in the mountains and she happens to lose one of her shoes and it falls down into a ravine and she can't get it back. Uh, a lowly prince from another kingdom nearby happens to be hunting and finds the shoe and he takes it home with him because that's what you do when you find a tiny delicate shoe, apparently. You take it home. And his mother eventually says that she's heard of this princess in, in the nearby kingdom, a far greater kingdom, who has whose father has said he will offer any reward uh, to the person who can bring the shoe back. Why, since he's so wealthy, he doesn't just commission a new pair of shoes? I don't know. Apparently she had to have that one. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the prince's mother says, you should take the shoe back to them and don't ask for gold or riches or anything. Ask for the hand in marriage of the princess. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, that's what happens. The shoe fits, etc., etc., etc. They kind of get together. She decides that she really likes the cut of this prince's jib, so she's quite happy to marry him. Um, nice. They, live, they get married, they live together for a while, and then eventually he says, I must go back to my own kingdom. At which point it comes to light that he has actually got another wife already, who would be first wife. Um, Apparently this is fine. She's not bothered by this, according to the story. Um, and the first wife takes against Sodewa Bai. So here we're in slight Snow White territory a little bit. Yeah. And um, I, there's this, I mean, again, I won't go into too much detail because we've kind of covered the Cinderella bit. But this, this first wife, um, to her face, is very nice, but is very jealous of her and is mm. determined to get rid of her. And eventually she finds out that the gold chain around her neck contains her soul and she has a slave go and remove it and put the chain around her own neck. Uh, yeah. So Dewa Bai falls down as, as if dead, but she's so beautiful that no one can bear to bury her. So she's put in this chamber, etc. Snow White territory again. Yeah. Um, except that every night the slave takes the necklace off her own neck and puts it beside her bed. And at which point the soul in the necklace returns to Sadewa Bai. So she wanders around in the dark. So after a while, the, start, the palace gardens are haunted. <laughs> nice. <laughs> There's this whole thing where eventually Sadewa Bai, despite being apparently dead, gives birth to a son. Um, okay. And the, the prince eventually discovers what happens. The necklace is reunited, etc., etc. So you get the you get the double threat of the, the shoe fitting and then finally the necklace being returned, etc. Yeah. So, um, yes, a bit of a, a mixture there, but definitely you can put that in the Cinderella category, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree. That's a really, really love, lovely one. Um, okay, so the next one is Cenerentola. Cenerentola is uh, Gian, 
Gian Battista Vasili in the mm-hmm. 16th century. So he was writing it for his collection of of tales, and I think he ended up going into the collection that was published posthumously. So we're sort of mm-hmm. looking at sort of 1659-ish, maybe a bit later. Um, yeah. And a lot, of, I won't say the whole story. If people want to go and look it up, go and look it up. It's, re- it's quite an interesting take. Um, and it is very classically uh, Cinderella as we c- later come to know it, but without some of the trappings that you would expect. Um, mm. In Senna and Tola, she does have an aunt who is a fairy godmother. Um, this aunt lives with them, but is powerless to affect any real change, except apparently on this one night when she can put her in a dress and send her off in a, in a pumpkin, etc. Yeah, um, which, I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. Fairy I mean, tales. if that's just yeah. your one night that you can do stuff, great. Fine, um, yep. <laughs> and, you know, I think things get whittled down, but traditionally in all of the Cinderella versions originally... She goes off to the ball, which is three nights long. So it's like you go back for three nights for this event. We have to bear in yeah. mind the balls and things were planned. You know, they took months to plan them properly. Um, yeah. So they were the, the social events of the season, um, depending on what century you were in, etc. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting that the sisters in this, I think, I could be wrong, but I think they might actually be her real sisters. And her right. father has married someone who, you know, just is is quite his. Her father is quite negligent in this one, but she's a dutiful daughter, so she obediently does as she's told, kind of thing. So it's very much of its of its time, you know, the sixteenth yeah. century. Um, so it does have the general gist of um, Cinderella type tropes and things that you would expect. Love it. Okay, uh, so we then get to the 17th century, so... Um, we should visit France, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which is uh, Finette uh, Saint-Ron, um, which was uh, Madame uh, Dolno- uh, Delnoy, is it? Delnoy? I, you're probably pronouncing it better than I am. <laughs> I'm sure that's right. Um <laughs> Yeah, this is an interesting one because we know Cinderella as a French fairy tale, but we kind of know the Perrault version, I think, most yes. most commonly, which I'm, I'm I'm sort of assuming Madeline's going to tackle that one in a minute. Yes, this, yeah. This one has <laughs> this one has a very Celtic flavor. Um so it's slight it's an earlier version. Uh there a king and a queen lose their kingdom, we're not told how, so they sell everything that they've got left and then eventually they're just poor. And the queen resolves that she can make nets with which the king can catch birds and fish to support them. You know, that's quite a come down in the world. It is, yeah. So, but... so it's not just it's not just the Cinderella character, it's not just the youngest daughter, Finette, it is in fact the entire family that's in degradation. Yeah. Um eventually things get you know, you know, the daughters haven't been brought up to hard work, so it's not really a great call, and neither of the king and queen, in fairness. Eventually, the queen says to the king to take the three daughters somewhere and leave them there because they're useless. Yeah. So this woman is not messing around. (laughs) Um, The youngest daughter, Finette, overhears this and she goes to her aunt, a fairy godmother. But she becomes tired on the way um, and ends up sitting down to cry because you do, apparently. 
and a genet or wren appears before her. She begs it to carry her to a godmother, which it, it then does. Uh, anyway, the, there's a bit of Hansel and Gretel here where the fairy godmother gives her a ball of thread that if she ties it to the house door will always lead her back and a bag with a gold and silver with gold and silver dresses in it. Um, again, I'm going to sort of condense this a lot because you don't you can go and find the story if you want to read it for yourself. Yeah. Um, Finette basically would have been fine in this story if she'd just left her sisters, but she won't do that. Even though her sisters are mean to her and insult her, she insists on helping them every step of the way. So the first time their father leaves them there, um, they find their way back. Finette has a bag of silver and gold dresses, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time, it happens again. The third time, the fairy godmother says, no, look, this time you have got to leave your sisters there. Otherwise, yeah. I'm not going to help you again. <laughs> <laughs> and Finette's going, okay, I understand that, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what she does. And the fairy godmother exits stage left at this point in the story. That's it. That, that's the supernatural aid over. <laughs> um, the third time they go back, the queen actually tries to kill them. Um so what they do, the three sisters sort of flee in the night with this bag of, of dresses, uh, which Finette has not told her sisters about because she thinks they'll sell them and waste the money. Uh, yeah. They find a house, they find an abandoned house, they find an acorn, which apparently the other sisters want to eat, but Finette won't let them, so they plant it and it grows into a wonderful tree. Um, and it then sort of follows mostly the same sort of thing. The sisters are more thoughtless and mischievous in this in the sense of they find the jewellery and the dresses and they dress themselves up and they go off to a ball and they, they impersonate the nobility which you know is, is actually a capital offence you could get killed for that during the 17th century um, and they sort of borrow money and, and stuff against it and Finette is turned into a servant in her own house by her sisters the sisters she refused to abandon Yeah, and then from there um, she sort of this marvellous tree that grew out of the acorn she refused to let them eat the, the tree um, helps them uh, there's a lot of overthrowing of ogres and um, things like that in there as well so it is Cinderella but with a lot of other elements in there that you wouldn't expect to find yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's like the wild version of Cinderella <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of Cinderella, but on on speed or something. On speed, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, and, and we can do this, and there's a magic tree, and there's a chest that produces magical clothing, and yes, you'll go to the ball and meet the prince, but you'll run from him, you're hiding in Ogre's castle. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Basically how that one goes. But it is still a Cinderella story, and it was one I wasn't familiar with. That's very, very cool. Okay, so... Um... The next one, uh, as Jules mentioned, is the Charles Perrault version, um, uh, Cinderillion, or uh, Cinderillon, which is sometimes also called the Glass Slipper. Now, this is actually, I think, quite an interesting one, uh, because in some ways it has, uh, you know, a lot of similarities to versions that we see, obviously, uh, the, the Grimm's version, which is obviously very well known. I'm not making that up, am I? It is the Grimm's ver- yeah, it is the Grimm's version, yeah, which ends with the you know, the birds flying in and blinding the sisters yep, and all that's that jazz. The one. <laughs> yeah. Um now Perrault has one interesting thing about Perrault's uh writing is that the way he inserts certain details, he actually really loves 
he loves things like clothes, for instance. He, <laughs> sometimes he's actually quite detailed when it comes to kind of clothes and things like that, but also characterization. Now, in this version, you have um, the beginning actually starts with descriptions of the mothers, which I find really, really fascinating. Uh, the father remarries. He doesn't die in this version, I don't believe. Um, he's just there and Cinderella chooses not to tell him about her situation because she doesn't want to bother him, essentially. Yeah. And he's it's... just kind of, he just over he sort of overlooks it. Yeah, he's a bit negligent and she's kind of it's not the right thing to come between a man and his wife sort of thing yeah, if I don't exactly. like my new mother. Yeah. So it's actually quite interesting because the the story literally begins with him and describes the fact that he marries a woman who is um very proud, very haughty, etc. Um, and who has two daughters already. And then it talks about the fact that he already had a young daughter um, who is, um, you know, very good and sweet of temper. Um, and it doesn't say that she's good looking. It just says that she's good and sweet of temper, which she got from her mother. Um, and what's interesting is that her mother is described as the best creature in the world. Yeah. So straight away, you have a lot of emphasis put on the on the mothers of the story now there's also a lot of sense of kind of characterization um even with the with her two sort of older sisters um now uh yes so um so the mother the stepmother um once she's married she she can't bear the fact that um that Cinderella is so good, essentially. She, you know, it, it talks about the fact she cannot bear the, the qualities, the good qualities of this pretty girl. Um, I believe is is the quote from the from the translation that I've yeah. read, um, and more so because of the comparison of when that of when Cinderella is compared to her own daughters, it makes her own daughters look bad. So she employs, she makes her do all the, the sort of the horrible work. Um, and uh you know kind of just pushes her off she doesn't get her own bed anymore and and cinderella just takes it um and she's forced to in order to stay warm once she's finished her work she she goes to the chimney um and she sits um among the cinders which um her fa her family essentially start to call her the equivalent of you know cinder wretch or something like that but one of her sisters who is isn't quite as rude as the older one calls her Cinderella instead. Yeah. So, um, so it's quite noted that we do have one of the sisters is actually not quite as bad as the other. And we get that sense that yes, they're kind of inheriting it from their, their parents. Now um, in this version, um, she, you know, they, the sisters kind of tease her by saying, um, you know, by saying, first of all, what they would like to wear to the ball. Um, and uh, they actually ask Cinderella, don't you want to come to the ball as well? And Cinderella says, it's, you're, you're mocking me that, you know, it's, I'm not the right person to go to, you know, I have no place these kinds of occasions. At which point they, you know, they go, oh yes, you're absolutely right. And they kind of start laughing at her. Um, all the while they go to her for advice for, for in, in doing their hair and stuff like that. So they seem to like her and rely on her, but she has also kind of taken note of the way that 
you know her her mother has put her down she's started to believe it so in there it it very much does feel kind of very similar so after they've gone off to the ball she sits she cries um her fairy godmother appears um makes her the sort of uh the, the horse and the carriage and um fixes her hair and and gives her these beautiful kind of clothes um etc um and so um so off she goes to the ball we then get the king right now i believe the quote is the king himself old as he was could not help watching her and telling the queen softly that it was a long time since he had seen such a beautiful and lovely creature yeah that bit always struck me i'm like is he supposed to be diplomatic because he clearly has no diplomacy skills there at all just turn to the queen and i mean either that or they're just very trusting with one another maybe she's there like yeah you're right that is one beautiful woman um but you know at the same time it does make me laugh he just turns to his own wife and he's like i have not seen anyone that beautiful in a long time she's like thanks thanks husband um and yes obviously you know she catches the attention of the of the of the prince um because and he in fact he's so caught by her that he he can't eat because he's just <laughs> too busy staring at her. Um, so the ball uh, then goes on for three days rather than uh, one day, um, and th- I've, I believe that there are you know kind of stipulations, um, and all between she's kind of running back and then sort of doing the housework etc. Um, and then I, I'm pretty sure that kind of the story sort of continues in in then much the way that one would ex- expect uh which is the shoe and he goes to find her um but then as with all of Perrault's stories that it finishes with the morals and the morals always amuse me yes uh, so moral number one of Perrault's story is uh, beauty in a woman is a rare treasure that will always be admired. Graciousness, however, is priceless and of even greater value. This is what Cinderella's godmother gave to her when she taught her to behave like a queen. Young women in the winning of a heart, graciousness is more important than a beautiful hairdo. It is a true gift to the fairies. Without it, nothing is possible. With it, one can do anything. Um I mean, it's Which... like, I don't entirely <laughs> disagree, but the way he's pompously mansplains that to yeah. people who probably already knew it is once again kind of like, yeah, well done, Perrault, you're absolutely clueless. <laughs> Yeah, but it's the other one which is like a punch to the gut, which is, without a doubt, it is great advantage to have intelligence, courage, good breeding, and common sense. These and similar talents come only from heaven, and it is good to have them. However, even those may fail to bring you success without the blessings of a godfather or a godmother. It's sort of doubling down on the filial side of things, isn't it? (laughs) It really is, but it's it, the thing is that every now and again you're like, uh, oh, oh, maybe Peralt, maybe Peralt's finally starting to get it, and then the classism comes back in, the inherent classism, yeah, just comes swinging back in, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember, I remember now. <laughs> yes, so um, I think Peralt really gave us the structure of the story as we know it now. The other thing to note here is that there's been an ongoing debate which doesn't look to be solved anytime soon as to whether the slipper was made of 
glass or whether it was made of fur, and this is to do with a French mistranslation or potential mistranslation where the word for glass and the word for fur are actually yeah. very similar words. It's ver, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. Um, I think also in this version as well is that he, her sisters go with her, you know, her sisters throw themselves before her after she's been chosen, you know, yeah. um, and she she embraces them and she just wants, you know, their love. And I think one of the most interesting things and the thing I really like is that Perrault does mention the fact that, um, you know, she comes out and I'm pretty sure that she's actually in rags when he when she tries on the shoe. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, and he takes a, you know, even in these rags and he thinks she's just as charming. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure he thinks she's even more charming like this yeah. than, than, in her, in, than in her ball gowns. So clearly he's very, very impressed with it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that takes us on to Aschenputtel, which is by the Brothers Grimm, um, mid-1800s. And obviously, once again, the Brothers Grimm refused to put anything in their house marching that wasn't actually German or of German mm -hmm. origins. So they had to find their German version of Cinderella. Uh, there may well have been one, but it's a very noticeable that the bare bones of this story are essentially the Perrault version. Um, yeah. With some Grimm additions. Very, you know, big emphasis on the Grimm. But um. This is the first example of the stepsisters actually being described as ugly creatures. Mm -hmm. And not only ugly, but unaware, as in because they think a lot of themselves because of their social standing, because they get to treat Cinderella in a particularly bad way. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's their, their coarseness and their, their lack of um, familial duty, etc., familial, familial affection. The fact mm. they won't embrace their stepsister is very much not in their favour in this story. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it follows a similar structure, except there's no fairy godmother here. Instead, there is a tree which has grown up on the grave of Ashenputtel's mother. And yes. she goes and sits under the tree. And sometimes there are birds in the tree. There's all sorts of stuff in here that's different. I recommend people go and, and read the you know, the story for themselves if they want to because we can't really cover it all here but yeah. there's things like they the the Grimm brothers really love adding tasks in for their heroines have you noticed that yeah they really they, they they're like no no you're gonna have to work for this <laughs> so despite basically being treated like a, a slave by her stepmother and definite you know there's definite grim abuse going on and the fact her father's alive and is just ignoring it he's aware he's just ignoring it um you know, the, 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 the invitation goes out, all the young ladies of the land, and it is literally all the young ladies, but I bet if you turned up in rags, they'd turn you away at the door. Kind of yeah. Thing. Um, Cinderella said, well, I am a young lady. I was born to this social standing, and I should, please may I go? And her stepmother throws, I think it's peas, into the ashes and tells Cinderella to, or Ash and Puddle, to sort them out um, mm -hmm. in one hour, and she can go to the ball kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so Cinderella summons her magical birds in to come and sort them out for us pigeons, I believe. And this goes on three times. Um, each time Cinderella wants to go to the ball, she goes and stands under the tree and says a little magic rhyme and the tree gives her a dress or the mm -hmm. birds bring a dress in. 
Um, it's very noticeable that she's literally running away from the prince each time, to the point where you might be forgiven for thinking that actually she doesn't really like him. She just wants to go to the ball and he happens to be there and he won't let anyone else near her. Yeah. Of course, that could be the Grimm's going, oh, no, no, this is feminine delicacy. Of course she would run from his advances. Yes. Make up your own mind. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the, then we get on to trickery. Again, the Grimm's love trickery. When they the, do. the prince is going around with the glass slipper, um, Cinderella's basically locked up in the cellar. Mm-hmm. And he's finally got to her stepsisters. And he tries it on the first one and she can't make it fit because her toe's too big. So her step- her mother says, cut off your big toe, basically. Yeah, which it's- is a healthy thing for a mother to say Absolutely. to her child. And not only does she say cut off your big toe, she says when you are queen, you will have no need to go about by foot. And I'm like, this is not a great thing to be saying to anyone. No. The prince <laughs> must be seven kinds of stupid because... There she is with her foot in the shoe and he's like, yeah, okay, fine. Puts her on the back of his horse and he's like, this isn't what I was really expecting, but okay, no matter what. And they're riding off and then the birds start tweeting in the tree. You know, basic, basically the birds are tweeting, yeah, you might want to check that shoe because there's blood in it. And he realises yeah. and sort of takes his sister back and chucks her off kind of thing. Uh, the other one tries it and the same thing happens, but with her heel, same thing with the birds, etc. And then the birds tell him to... Uh, get Cinderella out of the cellar and try it on her and he finally recognises his true love mm-hmm, yes mm-hmm. we really believe you um, <laughs> they get married and the stepsisters go with Cinderella and one stands on the left and one stands on the right and as they're going in pigeons swoop down and pluck and pluck out the left and right corresponding eyes and then as they're coming back out sisters have swapped places for some insane reason and they're not upset by having lost the eyes the first time and the pigeons come back and take their eyes out the other way. And that is that that's the end of the story. That's how it ends with her stepsisters being blinded on her wedding day. Yeah, and to be honest, I mean, the Grimms really do love a good story which involves someone uh, people being blinded or or being harmed on wedding days, don't they? They do have a bit of a thing for that. They really really do. But that being said, I mean, the Celts also have a thing for it. So apparently this is just a <laughs> A fairy tale staple, which is uh, if it's your wedding day, someone's getting blinded um, or maimed. <laughs> yes, which takes us on a whistle stop tour to Scotland and Ration Courty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, again, I won't go into the entire thing, but the things that I would like to note that are different are that it's. In, in Russian Coty, in at least one version of Russian Coty, it is the girl's own mother who drives her out and mm. says, go and sleep with the pigs kind of thing. Um, yeah. Go and sleep out in the cow byre. And there is a red calf amongst all the cows who becomes her dearest friend. Um, in one version, she actually escapes on the back of this cow. Um, in another, the cow sort of you know, helps her with all sorts of things. Um, you do kind of get the ball and the shoe trying on. That is all in there. But it's it's very uh, Celtified, shall we say. Yeah. Because it's set in Scotland and, you know, fine glass slippers really don't have a lot of place in Scotland. No, not really. There's not a lot not of terrain where it's, yeah, very appropriate to really have that those kinds of shoes. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the mother realises that Cinderella has this this red calf as a friend and has the calf killed but Cinderella collects up all the bones and buries them. And when she goes to the grave, then she gets wishes and things. Um, that's in the version, obviously, where she doesn't escape on the calf's back. 
So it, it does basically follow the same thing. She does end up marrying a local laird who finds her due to her footwear. <laughs> so it, it, it's the same sort of thing. But again, it's got this this stripping away of the refinement and the glitter that, you know, the Grimm's kind of do as well. Which is, yeah. It, it, this would be a fine tale if it but had some gore in it kind of thing. Yeah. Let's make it a little bit more entertaining. Let's <laughs> let's just add a tie. What's the point if it doesn't have at least a little bit of maiming? Yeah. Um, we then rush off to Russia and all, all the the Finnish uh, retelling by Andrew Lang, which is uh, about sort of eighty years after Russian Koti. Um, yeah. And that's obviously the wonderful Birch. Yeah, this is, um, you know, if you've never read any Russian fairy tales, then they are they're they're quite different. In <laughs> they different is definitely the word for it. <laughs> um, basically, the things that are prized in Russian fairy tales are cunning and being a bit devious and being bold enough to pull the wool over someone else's eyes, and occasionally a little bit of judicious cruelty, shall we say. Um, but what happens in this one essentially is a young woman is going home to her husband. She wants to cross the bridge and a witch steps in front of her and says, if you cross the bridge, I'm going to turn you into a sheep. And she's like, oh, no, no, please don't do that. I won't cross the bridge. I'll, I'll swim across. Uh, but the witch decides to turn her into a sheep anyway. And she goes home with the sheep on a piece of string, um, having disguised herself as the peasant woman. Um, okay. So she masquerades as his wife. She bears him a, a daughter and the only person who isn't fooled by this disguise is the, you know, the sheep wife's original child, um, who is basically just pushed into being a, a servant in her own house. Right. Um, so she's still talking to her mother, who is trapped as a sheep. Um, the the stepmother basically finally tells her husband to slaughter the sheep before it runs away, and he agrees. Um, the stepdaughter tries to to warn the sheep, but she she can't do anything about it and her mother just says it's okay dear just don't eat anything made from my body and bury the bones uh, which she does and a birch tree grows up on the grave and then it's very very similar except that you'd add the sort of russian type trappings and things so you'd have a young czar's son um uh, there, there's a lot more gore again as well. So it's it's similar to Ashen Portal in the sense of she's going to the tree, the tree is raining down gold on her. The things that happen to the stepdaughter and the stepmother are really quite grisly. As in, I think the stepmother falls into a pit of burning tar, which the prince has cunningly disguised so she can't see it. And she literally just burns to death and they just stand there and watch her. Oh, that's nice. Yes, that's, um, that's what you can expect. What so, about the stepdaughter? I kind of feel sorry for the step, for the step, rather the the the, the stepsister. Yeah, the stepsister um, gets turned into a bridge. Yep, yeah, silence. <laughs> okay, I mean it's not her fault, but <laughs> I mean th to be fair, this this witch who disguises herself as the girl's mother does all sorts of stuff. Like, I mean, she goes off and she marries the prince and she has a child. And then the witch turns up again, annoyed, and turns the girl into a reindeer. <laughs> so there's there's loads of other stuff. It, it doesn't stop. <laughs> you know how most Cinderella stories stop with her marrying the prince? Yeah. Um, this one carries on for a while afterwards. 
okay. Until finally the stepsister and... Um, no, until finally the witches died. But the, the nice note here is that the, the stepdaughter, the, the older stepdaughter, sorry, no, the, uh, the stepsister is rescued from being a bridge and um, is sort of pardoned and they find a place for her. Oh, that's nice. Yes, that's the, that's the, the one gleam. <laughs> Good, I mean, a fate as a bridge, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Literally to be walked over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple of Celtic variants, which I again I will go through really, really quickly. There's the sharp grey sheep, which is a Scottish and Irish one from around 1890. Uh, again, you can find it in a lot of... I mean, just Google the sharp grey sheep and you'll probably find a variant of the story. And it's very similar to Ration Coty, except it's a sheep, not a calf. This is a very knowing sheep. It's amazing how like dynamic the sheep are in these stories. <laughs> Yeah, though I like it doesn't actually surprise me considering. Yeah, you'll you'll get these stories of of sheep. They they can be quite cunning, actually. Yes, they can also be really dumb. They can be incredibly dumb as well. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> so it, it's very similar. You know, the sheep dies, but she, the sheep, she's already told the Cinderella character to bury her bone or to you know to collect her bones, which she does. Uh, but Cinderella forgets her hooves. So when she resurrects the sheep, because this is a Franken sheep, um, the sheep is lame. It doesn't have its little hooves. Oh, Which is obviously quite sad. But then it follows the same sort of basic outline of I, I must disguise myself, etc, etc. There's something I should have mentioned about Rash and Coty is in, in the end, um, and it happens again in the sharp grey sheep, in the end the Cinderella character cannot deal with the abuse at home. Yeah. So she runs away, disguising herself in a coat of rushes, and it's something you see in Cap of Rushes, which is technically a different sort of story. There's a different yeah. reason for her running away, which perhaps we'll do in another one. Um, and she never gives her name in the house that she goes to work in, um, but it, so they call her Rash and Coty because she always wears a coat of rushes. Right. And she ends up meeting the young son from that family, which, and again, the same in the sharp grey sheep. And he's, you know that they have a big party and whatever and she obviously disguises herself in a beautiful dress and he dances with her all night and she runs off at midnight etc 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 um he's so taken with her he'd given her a ring at the time and he can't find her he can't find her he's just so desperate for this woman who's just vanished into the night who's actually just working in his kitchen but he hasn't noticed because <laughs> apparently a coat of rushes hides everything um that he falls ill and in the end, she makes soup for him and she slips the ring into it because she can't go and see him directly. And he has the soup. He finds the ring and he immediately bring the person who makes the soup and slips the ring on her finger. And it's kind of, ah, you know, finally, instead of a, sh a, a slipper, um, yeah. it, it's the ring. So there you go. Aww. <laughs> I like that. They, you there also then have uh, the Irish uh, version uh, by Joseph Jacobs um, from around 1895, which is Fair Brown and Trembling. What a title. <laughs> yeah, this is a very Irish story in, in the way it's framed. Um, again, it's the basic Cinderella outline, but it's three sisters. They're not yeah. stepsisters. Um, and I think their parents were a, a king and a queen. Basically, this is a mashup of Cinderella and the two sisters, you know, where one of them drowns the other. Um, yeah. 
And that's what basically happens in this. They have three daughters named Fair, Brown and Trembling. Trembling being the Cinderella character and her older sisters try to drown her. Um, but it is basically a Cinderella narrative. I would suggest people go and look this up because the rest of it is the same. But it's really interesting that they, they, they add um, murder in there as well. A little, a little bit of sororicide <laughs> yes. there. Thanks. Um... <laughs> but I think that's okay. overall the ones that we've talked about. That is actually quite a, an interesting selection because not all the variants have huge, huge variations. There's usually just something little. This is yeah. this covers. I mean, we didn't talk about the Chinese Cinderella, where she's got something like five hundred sisters or five hundred stepsisters. Yeah, that's a whole other problem. Yep. <laughs> no wonder your father didn't notice what was happening to you. <laughs> okay, um, so before we we head off, I think we should probably have a quick look at some modern examples. Yep. Um, I realised that we have obviously quite significantly overrun. Oh, this well, is not nothing for us. No, no, actually, it's, it's not significant, actually. We're okay. Um, okay, so let's begin with probably one of the most obvious ones, which is Ella Enchanted, uh, which is Gail Carson uh, Levine. Yeah. I've, I've mentioned Gail Carson Levine before because I really love her middle grade fairy tale retellings. Yeah. What I, I mean, obviously, there's a film with Anne Hathaway in, which is, it's got a nodding resemblance to the book, and I did enjoy the film. Uh, but the book is like head and shoulders above the film in terms of narrative. Yeah. Um, in the book, what happens is that Cinderella's mother, Ella's mother, should never have married her father. And she realises it too late. She realises she sort of fell for him, not really knowing who he was. And who yeah. he was is quite a, a cold, indifferent and grasping, greedy sort of man. Yeah. Um, who doesn't treat her badly, but doesn't treat her well either. And doesn't really care about his young daughter. And yeah. he's always off trying to make more money, trying to acquire more riches rather than being with his family. He's a merchant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when Ella is born, a fairy turns up to bless her. And she also has a fairy who lives in her house because her mother is part of a group of people who are friends of the fairies, which is why they've all got tiny, tiny feet, including Ella herself. Um, but another fairy turns up, Lucinda, who's very powerful who's more than just a house fairy, and says, oh, a beautiful baby girl, oh, give her a blessing. And the other fairy's kind of like, no, 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 don't do it, but she's overruled. And she blesses Ella with always being obedient. So whenever she's given a direct command, she has to do it. If someone had told her to cut off her own head, she would have to do it. Gosh. So her entire life is spent trying to find little ways around what people are saying so that she doesn't have to be obedient um, and a lot of her accomplishments and things come from people at school and things telling her to do it like this no like this more like this and coaxing her into being perfect but she hates all those things because she's had no choice in them yeah the things she is good at include mimicry um, she's very good at finding the meaning behind people's words because she's had to be <laughs> And yeah. she makes friends with the prince, who isn't just like this handsome, charming prince, but is actually a little bit lonely because his parents are always busy. Um, yeah. And it's a wonderful story with centaurs and ogres and all sorts of things. And it's just uh, probably one of the best adaptations of the story I've ever seen or ever read. I've, I've never actually read it or seen it. Uh, I absolutely recommend reading the book. It's, yeah, I think you once you started reading, you'd be kind of like, oh my God, I've got to finish this. 
and it's quite a short book it's about sort of 220 pages so okay all right I, I will i will definitely read that um we then obviously have pretty woman uh yeah. which is i think also based on uh my my fair lady it's kind of um and you know pygmalion as well yeah um and obviously my fair lady is it's that whole rags to riches thing as in someone saw your true worth yeah um the the only thing that can potentially be a bit dicey about that is the fact that they didn't see you and think you were perfect as you were they thought project yeah but then again maybe you were happy to go along with that maybe you got to see something better i mean there's this line in pretty woman isn't it at the very end he says what happens when the prince rescues the princess and she says she rescues him right back because that is how you have a balanced relationship you you can't have one person always saving the other you need to be able to save each other equally yeah absolutely uh we then have ever after i really like that one it's the drew barrymore 90s film um where you know, it's set sort of in late Renaissance, and it's uh, they 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 actually talk about you know you have the Grimms turning up in this sort of prologue uh, to speak to this uh, countess, who then eventually at the end admits that it was in fact a glass slipper, not a fur slipper, and that her great grandmother's portrait hung in the palace until the revolution, kind of thing, which is very nice. And the actual story <laughs> is is really lovely because she's not a pushover she's been given a really bad hand but she has this really strong sense of of what is morally right and what is morally good and she won't be pushed around on it um they're a bit more explicit with some of the abuse as well there's one point where she gets she gets whipped and you know ends up with with a properly scored back um but it is very good and it's very funny as well it manages to be both of those things Okay. Um, we've obviously already in the episode discussed Disney's Cinderella. Um, yes, both the the cartoon and I I agree with Madeline. I think on this rare occasion, I think I actually prefer the live action version, uh, although the cartoon again just shows that that person who manages to. You know, she's literally just trying to break out of where she is. She's not going off and looking for someone else to save her. Yeah. And, I mean, I do have to say as well that... Um, the the thing about the cartoon is that they had all of those sequels, which actually kind of redeemed the, other, the sisters and stuff yeah. like that as well. So, like, good for you in that. Um, <laughs> but I do think that, yeah, the live action... the. The thing I really liked also about the live action is that obviously she meets the prince before and the two of them get along and she goes out there to meet to, to go to the ball to see him because and, and spends time with him because they actually like each other, you yeah. know, um, and that he's also struggling a little bit that he kind of wants her input because he's actually in a in an in-between space as well where he doesn't quite know, you know where uh, you know where he fits he's a bit nervous about taking on this responsibility and stuff like that so i thought that they did that quite well yeah i completely agree um unfortunate use of lavender's blue there with them not really understanding what the song was about but never mind it is a pretty tune yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i've mentioned marissa meyer's cinder before but just basically yeah. in this one it's a future 
state, we have people living on the moon who are psychic, etc. Um, the world is divided into basically three kingdoms. Cinder, or Lin Cinder, lives in what was China, but is now mm-hmm. you know, this United Republic type thing. Um, yeah. And she's a cyborg because she's been in a terrible fire. And it transpires later on that actually she's from this lunar colony. Um, you kind of have yeah. to read Cinder and the other three books together, the quartet. But um, it's a really interesting take on it. Yeah. I, I They've been on my to-be-read list forever, so I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to kind of maybe diving into them at some yeah. point. Um, we then have Ash by Melinda Lowe. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I read it a long time ago, so I'm going to try and be accurate here. Um, but this is one where, again, Cinderella does have some connection with with the fairies, as it were. Um, mm. But she doesn't fall in love with the prince. She falls in love with the prince's huntress, head of hunt. So it is a queer Cinderella retelling. And I think yeah. she makes a deal in the end for to spend one night with the prince in order to win her freedom and just disappear. And he can marry the person he wants to marry or the person who's sort of advantageous for him to marry. And she'll disappear off with the huntress, which is what happens. Yeah. Um, again, it's long been on my to-be-read list. <laughs> I really like the cover for Ash, though. I think it's a yeah, really beautiful cover. Yeah, it is cover. really gorgeous. Um and finally, I had to mention The Slipper and the Rose, which is now a, it's a super old musical now, and it's probably a bit clunky in places. I really like it because it actually gives the prince some personality. <laughs> and it's quite funny. You also have a very, very snarky fairy godmother in there, played by Prunella Scales, who is just perfect. Okay, I tend to fast forward through the mouse and lizard ballet, because I just don't need that. <laughs> But it, it sort of takes the, the classic Perrault tale. And there's a point where they actually deal with the whole, well, you can't marry her because even if her birth was high enough, there are several other kingdoms you've just insulted by not marrying one of their princesses and basically choosing a servant girl to marry. And now we're yeah. at war. So they try and spirit Cinderella away. And she, when it's explained to her, she goes and she goes with real grace. And they even say, you know, she certainly behaved like a princess should. Um, the fairy godmother gets well pissed off by this and says, look, there is another, there is, it's right under your nose, there is another explanation, there is the prince's cousin, if you just need the, a, a royal alliance, why don't you marry him off? He's already fallen in love with the person the prince was supposed to marry. <laughs> um, it's very funny, there's, there's some great songs and stuff in there. I really recommend it, I, I think you'd have to track down a DVD copy now because okay. i don't think it's on any streaming service but it, it, i'd have i'll have to check it, it out you can always does. borrow mine if you like madeline if you want to see it oh thank you well next time we have a get together where we're both there for the night or something because it's quite a long musical i'll make you watch it then how about that <laughs> <laughs> sounds great let's do it <laughs> all right well i think we have come to the end of our episode but um before we do go i mean jules where do you say just in terms of your kind of favorite fairy tales where do you feel like cinderella ranks um that's a tough one it's never in the top five but it's never in the 
it's never in my sort of little pile of oh god I'm not touching that again you know like um yeah like any of the ones with really really descriptive cannibalism in to be fair (laughs) (laughs) even though there are versions of Cinderella with cannibalism now um yeah I'm just I think the themes we we talked about this with the whole buttery goodness things the the whole the the themes the rags to riches that the extreme makeover etc all of it all of yeah. that is, is absolute butter. So you can see why this has probably been told since we started forming societies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about you? Um, I would probably say the same. Um, probably not in my top five, but probably in my top ten. Yeah. Um, and I think predominantly, as you said, you've got all that buttery goodness. There are a lot of actually really nice themes and ideas and images that you can draw from there. And it's also a very good story, a very easy story to adapt. Um, I think that I've been disappointed by a few adaptations of it, but I also think there have been some really fascinating adaptations of it. So I definitely quite like it. Yeah, I completely agree. I also prefer the... in, In my illustrated edition that I had as a child which had the most gorgeous paintings in it um it was basically the peril version except it wasn't a fairy godmother it was a pear tree that had grown up on a mother's grave and it had silver and gold pears and she would eat a piece of fruit she'd go out there to speak to her mother and that's what would give her the dress etc so they took away the birds that were pecking out eyes and stuff (laughs) (laughs) that's nice (laughs) Okay, uh, well, it is time uh, for us to say goodbye. But before we do, um, we do have our Dissecting Dragons recommendation for the week. And Jules, I believe that you have one for us. Yes, um, I recently read a book called Not Good for Maidens, which is by Tori Bovalino, I believe. I may have got that name slightly wrong and I apologise. It's basically a goblin market retelling. Um, It's told in dual narrative and it is uh, it's basically a queer retelling and there's a lot more from the goblin side of things as well so you know obviously the original Christina Rossetti poem is looking at female sexuality and how strange it seems up against male sexuality this is very much sort of like you've got witches and you've got goblins and yet at the same time they cannot help but be tempted by each other if you see what I mean yeah Um, there's a bisexual representation lesbian representation um asexual if you know you're interested in all of that as well it didn't matter to me so much just because the characters were done really well and even though maybe it's like not the most original version of the goblin market it was just a really enjoyable story so i do recommend that one okay thank you very much and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.